We'll finish the book of Exodus this morning by covering the whole of chapter 34 and the end of chapter 40. That's verses 34 through 38, since we've already covered everything in between. Uh, We're not going to be completely done with Exodus, though, as we will be spending uh, the next 10 Sundays, if everything goes according to plan, uh, examining together the Ten Commandments uh, more, um, I guess, thoroughly than we did the first time through. And so that should be great fun. Uh, This morning, though, as we uh, complete the book, the main idea I want you to keep in your mind, the paradigm through which I want you to uh, understand and think about uh, these sections of Scripture is this, that God displays His glory in His name, His messenger, His temple, and His people. We already looked at His glory displayed in His name last week, and so this week we're going to concern ourselves with His glory in His messenger, His temple, and His people. Just two parts this morning. We're going to consider God's glory together, and then we're going to think about our response to that glory. Let's pray. We'll do some background and get into the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to come before You as Your people, as Your beloved We ask that you would give us a fresh vision of your glory this morning. That we would walk away excited about what you've taught us through the study of Exodus about yourself, about the Lord Jesus Christ, and about our mission. Father, we pray that you would still our hearts, that you would keep us from striving and being distracted by a litany of other things this morning, that you would hone us in that we might learn from you, that we might hear your voice. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The whole story of the Exodus, we've said, is about God working sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory. And we've seen it from the very get-go, right? The first few chapters, we see that Israel is being oppressed by Pharaoh. And though they think everything is going wrong, We know that God was working behind the scenes. Even though they were oppressed and enslaved, God was keeping his promise to Abraham as the people multiplied and filled the whole land of Egypt. Remember the Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph wasn't too keen on the Israelites uh, prospering in this way and multiplying, and so he continued to try to oppress them. He made their burdens very heavy and began killing their infants. And one of those infants, his name was Moses, uh, wasn't named Moses at this point, but he ended up in an ark on the waters that would have judged him, the waters that would have consumed him. But God had set it up in such a way that he would be drawn out of the water, that's what his name Moses means, and into Pharaoh's own household. God would subvert Pharaoh's plan to overthrow his kingdom and his people through his mediator. God then came to Moses 40 years later when he was in exile from Egypt, met him in a burning bush and said, Moses, I'm sending you to my people and Pharaoh will let them go. Just as I drew you out of the waters of your death and into Pharaoh's household and the safety there, I am going to draw my people out of slavery in Egypt and into the freedom of sonship. They will be my family. I will be their God and they will be my people. Moses did just that. He went and God through signs and wonders and the ten plagues brought his people out of Egypt. But when we went into the wilderness chapters of Exodus, we learned something very quickly. 
that although the people had been saved out of Egypt, Egypt was not yet out of them. They still did not trust God. They still were searching for something more. Yet God continued to provide for their needs. He continued to lead them to Mount Sinai where they would enter into covenant relationship with him. He had promised to be their God, to make them his people, his kingdom of priests, his treasured possession. And after learning all that being God's special people would require, all of Israel responded to God with one voice in Exodus chapter 24 during that covenant marriage ceremony. We will do all you have commanded us. We agree. I do. We're with you, God. At which point Moses uh, goes up onto the mountain to meet with God and learn what all of this would entail more specifically in regards to the building of God's house so that he might live with and among his people. And and while Moses is getting the blueprints for the tabernacle, uh, God all of a sudden stops and says, these people, uh, they're worshiping another God. They've already turned away from me. And that's Exodus 32. Remember, they have made for themselves a golden calf. And they said, this is our God, the one who took us out of Egypt. And they begin worshiping this God that's been made in their own image. And God uh, hits Moses up with that deal. He says, you know what, Moses, I am just going to kill all of them and start over with you. And Moses says, that sounds great. No, no. Moses, instead, he recognizes this for what it is. If God wanted to, he could have eliminated all of the people with just the bat of his eyelash. But instead, he told Moses what he was about to do in order to invite Moses to pray for the people, to intercede for them on their behalf. Moses went to God and said, don't do this. Show grace. Show mercy. Moses then went down the mountain and wrecked house a little bit, brought some of God's judgment upon those who would not repent. And for those who did repent, they found grace and mercy. Though their sin was not without consequence, we learned there was still that mysterious plague at the end of the chapter that they had to endure, as well as the worst news that came at the beginning of chapter 33. God told Israel that he was going to keep his promise and take them into the promised land, but that he wouldn't be present with them. The people understood that this was disastrous news. They mourned, and once again, Moses went to God and implored him to be present, not only with him, but with his people, for the sake of his name and his glory among the nations. And in response to Moses' prayer, God agrees to continue in relationship with his people because of his love for their mediator, because of his love for Moses. Moses then asks God to put this in writing, if you will, to authenticate it by showing off his glory. God then gives Moses a fresh vision of his glory by proclaiming his name. And in response to hearing God's majestic name, Moses worships and then asks again for the people's forgiveness, for God to be present among them. And God again says, yes, I'll be present among you. And then uh, begins reiterating the covenant that they had already affirmed back in uh, chapters 20 through 24. He kind of gives them a sampling of the laws and says, this is the covenant my people will keep. We're going to continue to be in relationship. I'm going to forgive them. It's at this point that Moses comes down the mountain. And this is what we read in verse 29 of chapter 34. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai, 
with the two tablets of testimony in his hands as he descended the mountain. He did not realize that the skin of his face shined as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses and the skin of his face shining, they were afraid to come near him. Moses' face is radiant. I mean, he's not glowing like the way we say a pregnant lady is glowing, right? He's literally emitting rays of light. And this is bananas, folks. This is weird. And so the people respond accordingly. They, they freak out. They're afraid of Moses. They're, what has happened to Moses? Well, he's been with God. He's spoken with him. And as a result, he shines with God's glory. People are rightfully terrified here. Uh, if you read the Hebrew literally, I, I love it. Uh, it says that the skin of his face sent out horns, right? He went up their mediator and he came down the devil. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what happened. Uh, it's an idiom that means to, to shine forth light. We see it in a number of other patches, passages. And so we can know that Moses' face was shining with light. He didn't grow horns. Uh, but because of this, uh, earlier translations like the Vulgate, that's the Latin translation of the Bible, they misunderstood the idiom and would translate it literally and describe Moses as having horns. And, and so if you've ever wondered why some of the medieval paintings and Renaissance artists uh, depict, uh, like Michelangelo, some of those guys draw Moses as having horns, this is why <laughs> uh, they misunderstood the idiom. Uh, but the, ex- the expression uh, actually refers to, to rays of light. And they're, they're coming out from him in such a way as to be intimidating. His face beaming with light is not any less frightening than if he had grown horns. Many have wondered what exactly Moses' face looked like, and I enjoyed uh, one commentator's ruminations. This is what he said. He speculated, perhaps Moses' face pulsed with an odd light, like a strobe light. Perhaps it gave the impression of brilliance radiating out in various planes. Perhaps it looked like it was on fire as a reflection of when God's glory appeared on the top of the mountain as a consuming fire. I like this one, kind of picturing Moses when his head's just like a flame, you know, the original human torch, where they get the idea. I don't know what it looked like. We, we can't know with any degree of precision, but, but that's not the point, as fun as it is, to speculate about. The point is that the people are afraid and that Moses has been with God. Aside from the fact that your face glowing would be out of the ordinary, it's likely that people thought that Moses was, in fact, bringing them judgment. Maybe he had taken God's deal to start over with him. The, the glory radiating out from Moses' face is God's own, and it elicits the same fearful response that the people had to hearing God's voice back at Mount Sinai when he declared to them the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. But the reason God's glory is shining on the face of Moses is not to bring judgment but to confirm Moses' leadership, to confirm the renewal of the covenant, to confirm God's presence among the people, to confirm that the people would be forgiven their transgression. The people who had once dismissed Moses' leadership by saying at the beginning of Exodus 32, as for this Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Let's make another God for ourselves. They could now see just what had happened to Moses. He had been with and accepted by the very God they needed to fear. 
the God who cannot be cast into an image, the God who is invisible and ever-present everywhere, the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses carried in his face a small amount of what, in a larger measure, would kill anyone who got too close. God's glory with Moses is making clear to the people that Moses is his chosen mediator who makes the people able to enter into undeserved relationship with himself. Moses is the conduit through which God uh, delivers his mercy to his people. Moses becomes sort of a, a mini tabernacle here, right? Wherein God's glory rests on his face instead of in the holy of holies. Also, I, I don't know how I missed this earlier. In verse 29, I think it's funny. Moses has no idea that his face is on fire, right? Or, or glowing or shining forth these rays of light. Like he comes down and everybody runs away from him and he's like, what? Uh, just up there 40 days. Y'all don't like me anymore. I mean, this is an extraordinary experience. But, but what's happening is they're recognizing the glory of God and they go, they see their own sin. The glory of God, even as it's reflected in the face of Moses, is exposing the sin of the people. And they know that their sin deserves judgment, and so they flee. This helps us understand a little bit about this veil business in the next few verses, verse 31. But Moses called out to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai, told him to keep the covenant. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded. And the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Moses puts everybody's mind at ease. He tells them the covenant has been renewed, that they're not going to be judged for their sin, but instead are going to be given grace. And then when he is finished speaking God's word, he covers his face with a veil, uh, probably because people were staring at him a whole lot. It probably also scared the people. Not really told a whole lot, but also because that glory would have faded over time, as we'll see in a few minutes. One commentator helps us understand the veil a little bit more as it relates to Moses functioning as a mini tabernacle or the place where God meets with his people. He writes, What then are we to make of the veil? Its purpose is to cover Moses' face in the presence of the people after he enters the Lord's presence. The veil is not needed when he speaks with God, but when he speaks with the people. Moses' radiant face causes the same frightful reaction as God's glory itself. Within the broader context of Exodus, we may think of Moses' veil functioning in a similar way to the veil or the curtain in the tabernacle. Just as the people could not enter the most holy place to behold God's glory, now they cannot behold the glory of God reflected in Moses. He has, therefore, become the embodiment of the tabernacle. His role as mediator has reached a level and a depth not yet attained. We should also presume, even though the veil is not mentioned again, that this is the state of affairs until Moses' death. God's glory is being displayed in his messenger, in his mediator, in Moses. God is in relationship with Moses. 
he's displaying his glory in his face. This glory shining forth from the face of Moses brings the story of Israel's rebellion to a close. Right? They started to rebel at the beginning of chapter 32, and now we see that forgiveness is complete. That despite the people's sin, God is going to dwell with them. And it's really awesome. If you look right there in the first few verses of chapter 35, and you compare them to the last few verses in chapter 31, you'll realize that they're both instructions about the Sabbath. And this is intentional. The the Sabbath instruction bookends Israel's rebellion. What's happening is God is picking up right where he left off. He was in the middle of telling Moses how to build his house and and, and what they are to do. The people started to sin. The point is that forgiveness has been complete. The people are totally restored. And so the, the subsequent silence concerning the uh, events in Exodus 32 through 34, the, the silence throughout the rest of Exodus indicates to us that their forgiveness is total. God, because of his grace, will dwell among his people as planned. And he foreshadows that even in his glory resting upon Moses' face. And that's where it's going to take us to the pinnacle of Exodus. If you'll turn to uh, chapter 40 and look at verses 34 through 38, this is the climax. This is what we've been waiting for, for God to literally live among and dwell with his people. This is what we read there. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. God would go with his people. He would live with his people. I mean, do you see the repetitiveness in those few verses? The cloud is over the tabernacle. The cloud is in the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord is filling the tabernacle. This is amazing. The holy God lives with sinful humanity. God's presence is bursting forth through the walls of the tabernacle and illumining the entire camp of the Israelites. The One true God, the holy God of the universe, no longer dwells on Sinai at a distance, but has moved into his house among his people. I mean, this is glorious. This is wonderful. And yet it pales in comparison to the glorious intimacy that the church now enjoys with God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes of Moses' experience and the glory of the Old Covenant. This is what he says. Now, in the ministry of death, and that's what Paul is referring to as the law or the Old Covenant, because no one can keep it, chiseled in letters on stones, if this ministry came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, a fading glory, How will the ministry of the Spirit, that's the gospel, not be more glorious? 
For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, then the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison. Because the glory of the gospel surpasses it. For if what was fading away was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away, but their, mind was clo- their minds were closed. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted, because it is set aside only in Christ. Even to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the hearts of the people. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Friends, we, like Moses, see glory. We've known God, and as a consequence of knowing Him, are being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. The difference between Moses and us is that the glory we reflect, the glory that comes from our lives, does not fade away. Because the glory of God for the Christian does not dwell on us, but dwells in us, because we are in Christ. Great theologian Augustine commented, that whereas the law is only a step to glory, the gospel is the summit of glory. We stand on the summit of God's majesty and see his plan of redemption in its fullness. We get to enjoy an intimacy with God that Moses only tasted a very small amount of. The difference is, is like the difference between the sun and the stars. And the stars have a degree of brightness. You can look up and see them in the night sky. But when the sun comes up in the morning, its radiance fills the sky in such a way that you can't even see the stars any longer. Moses and Israel glimpsed the stars, whereas we behold the radiance of the sun. The gospel's glory surpasses that of the Old Covenant. When anyone truly enjoys relationship with God, it is as clear as the glory that shines from Moses' face. What I mean is this. When you spend time with God, when you really know Jesus, it becomes evident to everyone who encounters you. wonder, is it clear to others that you have been with Jesus it clear to others that you are in fellowship with God? Paul tells us that we are now God's many tabernacles. We are where God's glory dwells. We have 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple, his dwelling? 
and that God's Spirit lives in you? God doesn't just dwell with us, but in us. Just as His glory radiated from the face of Moses and burst forth from the walls of the tabernacle, it ought to spill out of us. Uh, sometimes my Keurig, you know what Keurig is, makes like a single cup of coffee. Uh, mine's older, and so sometimes it screws up and will make like a tiny cup of coffee, and then other times like a really big cup of coffee. Y'all have this problem, some of you. Well, you know, when it does the really giant cup of coffee, and like I always, I like creamer most of the time in my coffee. And so I'm like, it's like not much space. I'm like, I'm still going to put this creamer in there, you know. And so I, like, I, s- I squeeze it in there just a little bit, and I do that uh, shuffle because I usually have to walk somewhere and like sh- just little baby steps and that, that shuffle and sip kind of deal to make sure I don't spill any. Now, hypothetically, <laughs> let's say one of my children ran into the room and just bumped up against me. What would spill out of my cup? Coffee, right? That's what's inside the cup. What's inside the cup is what spills out of the cup when it's bumped. Does God's glory spill out of your life? When someone bumps up against you, makes you mad, disrupts your routine, messes up your day, what spills out of you? What's in your heart will eventually come out of your mouth, manifest itself in your actions. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What spills out of you? Take advantage of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Feast on God's Word. Delight in prayer. Be filled with God's Spirit, with God's glory, and radiate Now, though Moses gets a name, but not a face, when he asks to see God's glory, remember on Mount Sinai, he says, hey, I want to see your glory, and God says, you're not going to see my face, it'll kill you. And gives him a name, but not a face. Uh, On Sinai, he does get another opportunity, wherein he does get to stare full on into the face of God. It comes on a different mountain, though, and it comes hundreds of years later. It's on the Mount of Transfiguration, In Luke chapter 9, we read, About eight days after these words, Jesus took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his death, which was about to accomplish be accomplished in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was still saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. And the voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, only Jesus was found. They kept silent. And in those days, told no one what they had seen. 
on the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus unveils His glory. Shows everybody who He truly is. His face is altered. His clothes are dazzling white. The glory cloud from Exodus appears again. And who's there to see Him? Who's there to look full in His wonderful face? Moses! Dr. Marita writes, Previously Moses could not see God's face, but now he beheld Him. Now God could say, you want to see my glory? Look at my Son! Here it is! Moses was speaking with Jesus face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Luke even added that they were discussing Jesus' death. Interesting note here, the Greek word that is translated death here, uh, do you know what it means? It can be translated exodus. Moses, the one who led the original exodus out of Egypt and towards the promised land, out of Egypt and into God's presence, is talking to Jesus who leads the ultimate exodus. The one who, through his death and resurrection, draws his people, his church, out of death and into life together with God. You see, friends, Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. The true and better Moses. The tabernacle and all of its glory, all the glory we see manifested in Exodus, point us forward to the glory of God in Christ, who, according to John 1.14, became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the one who brings heaven and earth together. Jesus is the one who brings God and man together in loving relationship. And He does so by His blood. God displays His glory through His messenger, through His mediator, and through His tabernacle. He does this to show us the true and better mediator, the true and better tabernacle. He does this to show us Jesus. God forgave Israel and forgives us, not because we get our act together, but because of His grace. Grace is amazing precisely because in it, God gives to His people what we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus took what we deserve so that we can enjoy what only He deserves. That's covenant relationship with God. It is in response to this love and grace that we live grace-filled lives. Just like the Israelites had to be rescued out of slavery by God before they could live in covenant with God, we too must be rescued by God before we can live for Him. Does that make sense? Right? God doesn't love you because you're a good student or a great athlete or a perfect parent, because you're really good at your job or because you're really great at keeping the rules. No, God loves you because grace. God loves you because Jesus. Not the greatest sentences ever spoken, but good theology. He loves you because Jesus. And it is in response to this love that you live in obedience to God's word. It's through our obedience that we love God back. Our relationship with God is authenticated by our desire to be shaped by the gospel, to be shaped by his word. And the same thing was true of Israel in Exodus. In response to being in relationship with God, they were to live out God's covenant, his promise of present, continued, and future love. 
right? His, his covenant is meant to shape their very identity. And that's why when he was forgiving Israel and saying we're going to pick up where we left off, he reiterates all of the covenant by just giving a few sampling of its laws in verses 10 through 28 of chapter 34. Look at verse 12 real quick. God says, Be careful not to make a treaty, covenant, with uh, the inhabitants of the land that you're going to enter. Otherwise, they will become a snare among you. Instead, you must tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and chop down their Asherah poles. You are never to bow down to another god because Yahweh, being jealous by nature, is a jealous God. A covenant with God rules out any covenant with the Canaanites. God demands exclusive devotion from those who are in loving relationship with him. And his jealousy is a righteous function of his love. Uh, Packer notes, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. Israel is God's bride and he will not tolerate her giving herself to another. I mean, this makes sense. A husband who is not jealous for his wife's affections is not a good husband. If a husband doesn't care that his wife is giving herself to others in a way that is supposed to be reserved for him, then he doesn't care for his wife. God is not like this. God cares fiercely for his people, and he requires that we give to him our whole hearts. He wants what is rightfully his. He wants to ensure that his people are distinct in their exclusive devotion to him alone. I wonder what counterfeit gods threaten to become a snare to you. Verses 15 and 16 show us also that Israel is to be distinct in marriage and family. They're not to intermarry with the people of the land because it will lead to spiritual idolatry. Uh, Douglas Stewart helps us here. He says, intermarriage in the Bible is never discouraged on ethnic grounds, but religious intermarriage is consistently discouraged on religious grounds. In other words, there's nothing negative associated with the mixing of races, but great danger attends the mixing of religions. Of particular significance was that throughout the biblical world, marriage usually involved a woman's leaving her home and her family and moving to her husband's home to become a member of his family. If the religious convictions and habits of a non-Israelite woman were, as expected to be at the time she would reach marriageable age, well-established, she would import them into Israel upon getting married. See the problem here? She would take her gods into the house of the Israelite and then their worship would be compromised most likely. Verse 17 sums all of this up for us really neatly. It says, do not make cast images of gods for yourselves. He's warning his people, he's warning us against the whole orbit of idolatry. Israel is to be distinctly devoted to God, to orbit around him rather than idols. What is your life in orbit around? Are you distinctly shaped by the gospel? Are you exclusively devoted to God? Israel's also to be distinct in their giving. 
see this in verses 19, 20, and uh, 26, which recount for us uh, regulations on uh, giving, right? The regulations for giving the first fruits and uh, the redemption of the firstborn demonstrated the people's trust in God, their trust in his provision, rather than the pagan fertility practices, such as the infamous, you'll see in verse 26, boiling of a goat in its mother's milk, right? He's saying, don't trust in these magical, weird rituals that people think bring them some kind of security and some kind of prosperity. No, trust in me and prove that trust by giving to me the first and the best. The redemption laws especially represent God's kindness to his people. I mean, by rights, he owned everything that was born, first among any group, whether animal or human, just as the first fruits of everything that was grown was also his. And he doesn't insist on receiving the first of everything. He doesn't insist on receiving the first of all that comes from the crops, but he doesn't when it comes to his people. Right? There are people and certain animals that can be redeemed or bought back from God. They would be allowed to repurchase these animals and their sons from him. And he would, he would receive their payment in lieu of that person or animal. And the point was to show all of everything we have belongs to God. I mean, the redemption ritual would also remind them of the Passover. That the reason they are there to have a firstborn is because God passed over their sins by the blood of a slaughtered lamb that was sprayed upon their doorpost. Consequently, none of God's people are to come before him stingily or with empty hands. Instead, they're to show their loyalty to him by coming to worship him with a gift. The worship of God through the giving of the the first and the best reveals that the hearts of his people trust him. What do your gifts say about your trust in God? Do you worship him by giving him the best of your time, talent, and treasure? Does your giving indicate that your heart belongs to God? Verse 21 shows us God's people are to be distinct in their work and their rest. You are to labor six days, but you must rest on the seventh day. You must, and and I love this, even rest during plowing and harvesting times, right? The felt need to maximize their income during the plowing and harvesting seasons cannot be used as an excuse to ignore the Sabbath. I mean, in an agricultural society, this would have been a tough pill to swallow. One day's rest could mean the difference between success or failure. People aren't allowed to skip the day of restful worship. As God rested from his work in creation, they too are to rest from their work. God's people are called to trust him, not their own efforts, not their own work. I think this principle holds true for us today as we are to seek first the kingdom of God by fostering a healthy rhythm of work and rest in our lives. I wonder, is your rhythm of work and rest distinct from those around you? Do your work and rest profess a trust in Jesus or a trust in self? Anyone who cannot rest from work is a slave. A slave to the need for success, to a materialistic culture, to exploitive employers, a slave to parental expectations, a slave to pleasing others or all of the above. These slave masters, these idols, will abuse you if you are not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. 
Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. God has freed his people from slavery. He's freed his people from idolatry, and he won't see them returned to it. God wants you to live freely and to trust him for what you need. Lastly, we see that God's people are to be distinct in their festivals. Uh, These are important events that are on the Israelite calendar because they are identity-forming. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is kicked off by the eating of the Passover meal, serves as a reminder of their redemption from Egypt. Celebration of the Sabbath is a, a weekly occurrence that reminds them to rest in their adoption into God's family rather than working as slaves in Egypt. The Feast of Weeks celebrates God's provision in the harvest. And each of these celebrations recalls and reinforces Israel's identity as God's people. Now, we, of course, no longer keep uh, these Old Covenant festivals, but Jesus has given to his church new identity-forming traditions, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. Tim Chester writes, Baptism and the Lord's Supper remind us that we are God's distinctive people, marked by his presence and shaped by his covenant of grace. They remind us of God's saving action and our identity, of his commitment to us and of our commitment to him and one another. The celebration of the sacraments, like Israel's celebration of the festivals, marks off the church from the rest of the world. Our identity-forming traditions forge us together as those who, by faith, have been made part of God's family. We are to see God's glory in one another because God displays his glory in his people. He's given us a new identity. Made us new creations. He's told us his name. Made us his messengers. Indwelt us with his Holy Spirit. And charged us with making his name known among the nations with displaying his glory. Because Jesus offered his life for us, we offer all of our lives to him. There's not any area of our lives or of all of creation over which Jesus does not declare mine. It's all his. Our lives are lived as a grace-filled response to the glory that we see in God's grace in the gospel. Friends, I'm so glad that the book of Exodus isn't just about Israel's salvation and Israel's mission, but about our own salvation and our own mission. I'm so glad that as we've studied this book together, we've been able to learn that Exodus is about us. It's about Jesus. I mean, from Exodus, we've learned that Jesus is the Moses of our salvation, the mediator who goes for us before God, that Jesus is the Lamb of Passover, the sacrifice for our sins, that Jesus is our way out of Egypt, the deliverer who baptizes us in the sea of his grace. Jesus is our bread in the wilderness, the provider who gives us what we need for our daily lives. Jesus is our voice from the mountaintop declaring his law and his will for our lives. Jesus is the altar of our burning through whom we offer praise up to God. Jesus is the light on our lampstand, the source of our life and our light. Jesus is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. Jesus is our great and faithful high priest 
who offers himself on the altar in our place and ever lives and pleads for us. Jesus is the tabernacle that brings God and humanity into loving relationship. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the God who saves. In Exodus, we learn that our God is the God who saves, the God who works sovereignly to save a special people for his glory. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. He forgives our sin because of his love for his son in whom we are loved. Praise God for our exodus out of death and into life through the death and life of Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, pray that you would prepare us to respond to your word, the good news of the gospel, by proclaiming the good news of the gospel in the eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper. Pray that you would be present with us now, that you would make us both reflective and rejoicing as we look back to what it cost for you to love us and forward to what the death and resurrection of Christ purchased for us. Lord, we love you. We want your praise to be on our lips this morning. We want to look upon you and be made radiant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.